Welcome to Extraterrestrial Reality. Uh, one of the things that's always fascinated me about the subject of alien encounters is sometimes people hear noises, strange noises, humming noises, buzzing noises. Uh, that was my uh, encounter. That was what I experienced when uh, uh, I encountered an extraterrestrial back in 1977. Uh, one of the uh, key features of that entire incident was the fact that uh, there was this overwhelming sound. It's to me, I always described it as an electronic humming sound. A very, uh, it was loud. It was it was deep, and it was it sounded like it was electronic, and it was just, it, it, it was it never ceased. It just continued throughout the entire ordeal, which lasted about twenty minutes. Uh, I just heard this sound, like this humming sound, a low pitched electronic sound going mmm. Like that, the entire the entire uh, experience throughout the entire experience, uh, very strange. And I've been fascinated about this uh, for all my life because I I never really uh, could understand what that was all about, why that was happening, what what was it? I mean, I have I, I've speculated about it a number of times, but I really don't know uh, what that sound was. Of course. Uh, as a lot of people know, I'm not going to get into the entire story, but to make it uh, brief, as I wake up in the middle of the night, uh, I was sleeping with the blanket over my head. The light was on in the bedroom. My brother was on the other side of the room, and I could there, there was I wake up to this sound, this electronic humming sound, and I could see clearly that there was some entity standing right beside my bed. I could see it through the blanket. It was a thin blue blanket, and I could see that this being, whatever it was, it had three fingers uh, on its hand, three digits only, and the and the digits came to uh, were thick at the bottom and came to near points and it was just moving its hand close to where my head was and then further away and then close to where my head was and further away you know i i tried screaming for my parents i tried waking my brother up you know i asked questions to this thing that was in the room like well who are you what's going on i said my prayers next thing i know i got conked out and i wake up the next day and you know nobody believes my story i thought it was the devil i didn't know about aliens or that aliens enter people's rooms have been reported to do, have been reported to do those kind of things i did not know any of that stuff and years went by it was about 10 years when i re, when i saw a documentary and it was uh, about alien abduction and that's when i put two and two together uh, ev eventually i did after seeing that uh but during that whole course that during that entire event that that, that experience uh, it lasted 20 minutes long uh, I was wide awake. I was completely mobile. I wasn't paralyzed. I was underneath the blanket trying to figure out, you know, what this thing was. And I could hear this sound. Uh, uh, and it was overwhelming. In fact, it, when I tried hollering out to my brother and then later to my mom and dad, that muff, that humming sound was somewhat muffling my voice because it was just so uh, overpowering. Uh, but I, I, I always, sometimes I speculate that maybe the craft was up, you know, because we were sleeping in the attic, my, me and my brother Davey, and maybe the craft was the sound of the craft hovering outside the, of the building. Maybe it was hovering right over the house, and that was what I was hearing. Uh, and then, you know, you hear stories like the aerial school incident from uh, 1994. Uh, there was some of those kids talked about the sound that they heard during that entire incident. Of course, Aerial school involved over 60 school children in, in Zimbabwe uh, in broad daylight. Uh, they're on a on a recess and they see this craft land. Uh, there's other craft, smaller craft around. Uh, they see alien beings. One of the alien beings communicates telepathically with a handful of those, these these 60 some kids. Uh, but some some of the reports from the kids was that they also heard this uh, electronic 
buzzing sound like a, like a, like a, like a transformer or like a, a, a beehive a bunch of bees at, you know, in a beehive that's that's what i heard that's exactly what I, that was how i would describe it it was something like that so i know that because uh, <clears throat> i know what happened to me so that means i know that it's real uh, but I came across a case today that I thought was extremely interesting. It was a case that I'm surprisingly I never I never uh, uh, read about before. I actually been reading this book. It's a uh, it's probably over 20 years old now. The the world's greatest alien abduction mysteries, and that was one of the uh, stories in there. It's a it's a book with no author. It's just a compilation of different stories about uh, extraterrestrial encounters and UFOs. And uh, one of the stories in there was. Uh, with regard to a Canadian named David Seawalt in 19, who had an experience in 1967, and uh, and that one of the aspects uh, to his uh, terrifying encounter was the fact that uh, one of these beings that he encountered, which he described as quote monsters end quote, uh, it, to him they were that's how they spoke, that's what it sounded like. That that was when one of them spoke, it made it sounded like a beehive or or an electronic transformer, like a. So uh, I'm wondering now, now after reading this, I wonder if maybe that's some way of communicating that that's how they communicate that's what it sounds like maybe for some of them now the beings described here had four fingers now the being that i encountered had three digits on its hand it wasn't four but anyway i want to go through this uh, little article uh, this was something that uh, uh, this article appeared in the 1976 ufo report magazine and it was written by b and slate and I want to go through this article, and uh, then we'll talk about it. We'll talk about it as we go through it, and after after I'm completed with it, it says here it was 6:30 p.m. on November 17, 1967, in Alberta, Canada. 13-year-old David Seawalt ran through the front door of his home and raced upstairs like someone was after him. He was late coming home, so his older sister Angela was alarmed and followed him upstairs. There she found him trying to hide under his bed. David was in a state of shock and mortal terror. Angela also noticed that he was wearing only one shoe. She grabbed her brother and shook him, asking what was wrong. David was trembling violently. He was staring past her glassy-eyed dazed, his eyes reflecting the inconceivable horror he had just experienced. I was chased by a flying saucer, the teenager stammered, but even then David Seawall couldn't remember the entire incident. His missing shoe was later found in the middle of the road outside his home. David had left his friend's house just before 6 p.m. It was only a three-minute walk home if he cut through the vacant, across the vacant field, but David, who was always on time, couldn't account for those lost 30 minutes. The boy's usually placid, easygoing manner was replaced by an unusual nervousness and tension the rest of that weekend. When further pressed about his experience with the UFO, David Seawalt couldn't remember any details, just that something had followed him. I was going to stop there for a second. So basically... What should have taken only three minutes, uh, a three-minute walk home from his friend's house, turned out to be a half hour. He felt like he said the only thing he could remember was that he was he saw this flying saucer above his head and that it chased him all the way home. Uh, but he was absolutely terrified uh, of this experience, and he, but he couldn't account uh, for what happened during the, the lost time, the missing time. But uh, according to the article here, it says five months later, in April 1968, David had a nightmare. In his sleep, he struggled violently with his younger brother, who was finally able to wake him up. 
Call Dad, David said hoarsely, sinking back onto his pillow. Now I know what happened when I was chased by the UFO. David remembered being taken aboard the flying saucer and subjected to a physical examination by aliens. Aliens so different from man that he referred to them as monsters. His parents, after hearing their son's incredible statement, became quite concerned and called in UFO researcher investigator W.K. Allen of Kelowna, British Columbia. They had heard Allen discuss flying saucers on a radio talk show. Allen went to the Seawald home on Sunday, November 19th to interview David, but no new information was learned. All the boy could recall was that the UFO had chased him as he walked home across the empty field. Because of the untiring efforts of Bill Allen, Bill Allen was someone who uh, investigated UFOs, a series of hypnotic regression sessions were arranged with a leading dental surgeon. The preliminary sessions produced such states of terror in David, who trembled, perspired profusely, and wrung his hands, that the dentist hypnotist had to proceed very slowly. Each time he inquired about what happened after David had looked up and saw this big thing, the hypnotized boy could not audibly reply. His fear caused his legs to shake, to start shaking violently. When David regained his composure, the doctor repeated the same question, which caused another spasm of terror. So whatever was going on with this experience of this, of this uh, young David was extremely terrifying, extremely terrifying. I know a lot of people out there think that all these aliens here are here on friendly missions and they're here to help us and everything. But when they, when the re- end result are, is this kind of reaction, I, to, to me, it seems like they don't care about uh, what kind of horror they cause, especially to, to young kids here. It's ridiculous. <clears throat> anyway, continuing here. Says Bill Allen, who attended the hypnotic sessions, was convinced by David's reactions that the boy had indeed undergone a terribly traumatic experience. David was not inhibited. When under hypnosis, the dental surgeon suggested that perhaps he'd been late that winter evening because he was up to some mischief with his friend and devised the UFO tale as a cover up. David's reaction was extremely violent and hostile. The youngster was adamant that he was telling the truth. After let me just stop there for a second. You know, it is the, that, that you can I understand that position. I know you know after I had my experience in the seventies, uh, I, I was so I, I mean I was adamant. I knew what happened, but yet nobody I could not uh, convince my mom or dad that it was real that it, that it really happened. They thought they they were convinced that it was a dream, and I knew better. I knew it was not no. I knew there was no question in my mind that what had happened was no dream. I know that. After many trial sessions, the dentist changed his approach and discovered a way to circumvent David's horror of reliving the confrontation. Do you watch television, the dentist asked. David said he did. You've never been hurt watching television, have you? The dentist asked, and when the hypnotized boy agreed, it was suggested that David recount his experience in terms of viewing viewing it on a television screen, a drama that could, could not possibly harm him. As the experiment proceeded, Dr. Masson, a psychologist from the University of of Alberta, was called in. The following are selected portions from his questioning of David under deep hypnotic recall. The the doctor asks, Now, David, you feel very well. I would like you to see yourself on the 19th of November last year. You can visualize that. You can see yourself there. All right, well, you'll tell me where you are. And then David says, I'm in the empty lot. All right, the doctor says, Look around and tell me everything that you see. David says, I see an object in the sky above me. The doctor asks, What color is is the object? David says, silver grayish. It has a colored band of lights around the middle of it. All colors, 
Green, yellow, blue, orange, red, pink. And then the doctor asks, what happens next? David says, they put an orange beam on me. The doctor wonders about this beam. He says, where does the beam come from? And David says, the ship. What part of the ship? The middle on the bottom. How did you feel when the beam touched you? I was in sort of in a, sort of in a trance, David said. Uh, earlier, uh, David had stated under hypnosis that when he saw the beam coming down, he felt frightened. Now he was describing a second reaction after it touched him, and he was being pulled up into the ship. The doctor asked, did, you, did the beam grab hold of your arms, or did it grab hold of your body? What does the beam do to you? David says, it just brought me up in the ship. The doctor says, how did it bring you up? Like you were going up in an elevator? No, says David. Did you feel a funny sensation as you were going up? No, says David. Were you frightened? No, I was in a trance, David says. Did you scream? David says no. Doctor then says, all right, now what's going on? Keep telling me what's going on. David says, the beam is bringing me in the ship now. I see a monster. The doctor asks, tell me about the monster. And David says, it has a scaly skin it has holes for its nose and holes for its ears and it has a slit on its face for a mouth it's brown and the doctor asks how many monsters do you see and david says two and then the doctor asks what made you think that the skin was scaly what was there about the skin that made you think it was scaly and david says it looked like a crocodile skin it's sort of rough all over and the doctor asks what did their backs look like did they have a crocodile back too david says I never saw their backs, the doctor asks. Did, you have, did they have any clothes on? David says, no, they just, that's just that sort of skin. And then the doctor asks questions. Uh, were they smiling? Were they angry? Were they happy? And David says, no, no, no. And then he says, no, they didn't, he, they didn't show any expression. And then the doctor says, tell me everything that's happening now. And David says, they put me on a sort of a cot. Uh, he's looking at my body. And then the doctor asks, what about your body? And David says, he's studying it. He took all my clothes off. And then David, the doctor asks, all right, David, now what is happening? And David says, they're bringing me through a hallway into another room. The doctor asks, what does the other room look like? And David says, it has all sorts of bright lights in it. And the doctor asks, what else do you see? And David says, there's another table there. They put me on that table. And the, then the doctor asks, and now, David? David says, he's lifting my head up. He's lifting it up. Now, David's voice at this point is extremely frightened and plaintive as if wanting to escape from something uh and, and then he also says uh, this monster looks at my hair and my eyes and my nose and then david's breathing is rising and it falls with gasps and sobs as he relives this terrifying moment the doctor asks how many are, are looking at you and david says four what are they like and david says they all look the same the doctor asks can you tell me something more about their face and david says it's sort of scary what about their head it's round, David says. How many hands do they have? Two, David says. Are their hands very similar to you, yours? And David says, no, they're like real rough. How many fingers do they have? Four, David says. Do they have a thumb as well? And David says, no. The doctor asks, how big are these beings? David says, they're about six feet. The doctor says, what are they wearing? It looks like they're not wearing anything, David says. They have a brown sort of scaly skin. Uh, and th the doctor asks, how many feet do they have? And they, th David says, two. There's nothing on their feet. How many toes do you see on their feet? And David says, four. What else do you notice about them that's unusual? And David says, they only have four fingers. They have holes for their ears and nose and a slit for their mouth. The doctor asks, are they saying anything to you? And David says, I can't understand. The doctor asks, why can't you understand? And David says, it's a, it's a strange language.
The doctor says, says he's not speaking in English. David says, no. The doctor says, imitate the sound these beings are saying. And from at this point, David makes a long buzzing or humming sound, much like a giant bee or some type of machinery. <clears throat> Dr. Masson asks him to repeat it in, in, in case they could detect a pattern which might be deciphered. And the, the doctor says, and who is saying this? David says, just one of them. He's telling the others. And the doctor says, what is he doing while he is saying this? David says, he's looking at my body. The doctor says, have you ever been on a table like that before? David says, yes. And the doctor says, where? And David says, in an operating room. And the doctor says, what's going on now? You're on the table. And then David pauses here. He breathes, breathing heavily as if not wanting to remember. The psychologist repeats the question, telling the hypnotized boy that he will be comfortable and not frightened by anything that he sees. David says, they put this thing, this other thing over me. And the doctor says, what other, other thing? What does it look like? David said, it's a grayish color and they just throw it over me. And then this great big, huge orange colored light comes down and is shown on me. Then one of them took a sort of needle. It's gray. It's small. He sticks it in my arm. The doctor says, were you awake all the time when you were in this room? And David says, yes. The doctor says, did they give you anything to eat or drink? David says, no, I was sort of in a trance. The doctor says, how do you feel in that trance state? David says, sort of, I felt funny. I felt numb. And then the doctor asks, and what goes on now? David says, then they put my clothes on again. They wheeled me out and they beamed me down. Where did you get down? In, and David says, in the empty lot. And the doctor asks, just before you saw the ship, what are you doing? And David says, I'm walking. Do you hear anything? Yes, a high-pitched sound. What do you do when you hear it? And David says, I look up and I see this great silvery grayish object. The doctor asks, how big is this object? And David says, it's about as big as a house. The doctor says, and how far is it off the ground? And David says, about 30 to 40 feet. The doctor asks, what do you notice about this object? And David says, it has colored lights around the middle, which melt together. The doctor also then asks, do you feel any wind, any vibration? And David says, just the wind. Uh, what reaction do you have? David says, I'm frightened. You ran? Yes, but then the beam sh sh short shot down on me. The doctor says, and what did the beam do when it shot down at you? And David says, it brought me into the ship. And the doctor says, now I would like you to come back to the time just before you see the ship and before you hear that high-pitched sound. What are you doing? How are you feeling? What are you thinking? Uh, and David says, I was coming from my friend's house. I felt great. I wasn't thinking about nothing. The doctor says, now, right after the beam has pulled you up and everything, we're right back and the object has disappeared now what's going on david says i start to run for home the doctor asks and how do you feel as you run home and david says frightened and then the doctor says is there any other feeling that you have and david says i'm scared frightened i feel sort of numb all over the doctor says is there any part of your body that feels different from any other part of your body and david says yes my head like it was a twirling around and the doctor says how do you how do your legs feel and david says numb and the doctor says i'm going to wake you now you're back at the present after you wake up you'll be wide awake you'll be alert you'll be confident you'll feel fine and that's the end of this uh hypnotic session all the hypnotic regression sessions with david c walt were videotaped but efforts to obtain copies of transcripts of the experiment have been denied uh, but we do have this part of it, and this, this was a controversial case uh, at the time, 1967 it happened, and then, of course, uh, these hypnotic regression sessions occurred in 1968. Uh, really, really, at that time, I mean, that was in the early days of uh, people talking about uh, alien abductions. Of course, the 
Interrupted Journey was it wasn't published until 1966. I'm not sure if a, if a young teenage kid like David Seawalt was was even aware of something like that at the time. Uh, but he had uh, apparently a horrifying experience. He talked about creatures that, to me, sound like they're potentially reptilians. Uh, that's what it sounds like to me. Now, these beings seem to be different than the ones that I encountered. They, these things that he's talking about had four four fingers, four digits. Uh, the one that I encountered had three digits on its head. That's all it had. Um, so, But I think the, the, the interesting part to me here in this entire uh, story is the fact that you know he was hearing this sound and in, and from David Seawalt's perspective this this was a form of communication he was hearing this sound of buzzing bees or a, or electronic transformer sound when this thing was apparently communicating with others of its kind uh, and that's very strange you know you don't really hear that before yeah you know, I've like I've I've come across different stories with an alien encounters and abductions where you hear uh, people hearing this this buzzing sound, or they they describe it as buzzing sound. I always described it as an electronic humming sound, but I think we're all talking about the same thing here, and it makes you wonder. Um, I used to think that it's just the sound of the craft, but now I'm starting to wonder. Now after after going through this this article here uh, and this case and thinking about it, uh, what if it's some form of uh, they're trying to, these beings, they use this method maybe to uh, plant subliminal messages in our minds. Maybe that's what's going on. Uh, subliminal messages, according to study.com, are uh, hidden words or images that are not consciously perceived but may influence one's attitudes and behaviors. Now, I wonder... Um, is that what this is? Is that what? Right? Like, let's look at the aerial school incident, for instance. For uh, for instance, you, you know, some of these kids heard this buzzing sound, like a transformer or electronic or bees, right? That's what they heard, uh, and it was loud and it scared them. Whatever when they heard this, that was scaring them. Uh, it scared me too when I heard it, uh, but it was scaring them. It, but was is there something buried deep in these sounds that is maybe putting in subliminal messages into into the minds it seems like a lot of times these incidents incidents a lot are involve youngsters kids right uh all the aerial school kids they there was some of them that hurt noticed this buzzing sound this humming sound okay uh the, the this case here uh with david seawalt from 1967 uh he from his position he from under hypnotic regression he says that he one of the creatures was speaking when he spoke to uh, other creatures uh, while they were examining him on the table in the craft this is what it sounded like this is what the speech sounded like maybe that's maybe it was some sort of speech or maybe that was just seawalt's impression and maybe they're trying to implant some sort of subliminal message into their into into his mind that way maybe it's a way uh, the way aliens try to make people forget about what they're experiencing maybe that's what's going on here that the aliens are using these sounds uh as a way to implant messaging into our brains to whether you're to control us manipulate us somehow whatever but i thought this was a very fascinating case and i really wanted to uh, share it with you guys because uh it's definitely something to to think about it's, it's frightening it's scary there's i mean again all we can do is speculate what is i guess that's the question why are aliens sometimes doing what what's going on with these sounds that sometimes people hear uh, these buzzing sounds, humming sounds, like a, like a mad hive of bees or or an electronic transformer, 
uh, I mean, but loud and overpowering. What is that all about? Are, is it is it, is it a form? Are, is it speech? Are they sending out subliminal messages? Is it something from the uh, that the, the craft that they're in that, that that these craft just make these sounds? I don't know. I'd like to know. I'd like to get more information about this. I wonder if uh, anyone in in the governments of the world have figured this part out. Uh, what's what's uh, what's behind these electronic humming sounds? These buzzing sounds that people hear. These what's going on there? Why are they doing that? Is is is, is it of some use to the aliens? Is it some form of uh, sub, uh, of a way to transform subliminal messages into our mind? I don't know. It's all speculation. That's all we can do with this. Uh, anyway, moving on, I want to talk about something recently involving Avi Loeb. Of course, uh, Avi Loeb was uh, uh, the uh, Harvard physicist uh, who uh, re- was actually uh, out in the Pacific Ocean earlier this year, dredging the bottom of it to come up with material that he believes could be extraterrestrial in nature. That's something that landed, crash landed in 2014. Uh, and uh, now he's getting some blowback from, he's been getting blowback from uh, other people in the scientific community about it. Uh, but anyway, uh, here's an article. Uh, this is from uh, LiveScience.com. It says here, the headline reads, Alien spherules dredged from the Pacific are probably just industrial pr- pollution, new studies suggest. It says here, last summer, Har- Harvard professor claim tiny pellets of iron came from beyond our solar system, but new analyses suggest that they likely originated much closer to home. Now, before we even get into this story, I'm going to just give, give you a, a, a quick, cr- the quick crux of this is that we have scientists here who have not looked at these objects that were dredged from the bottom of the Pacific Ocean by Avi Loeb and his team earlier this year. Uh, they haven't looked at it, but they're just coming up with their analyses and, and saying that that it's could be from coal ash. Now, a- Avi has uh, 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 clapped back at them, and we will get into all of this. Uh, anyway, here it says the article says microscopic metallic spheres recovered from the Pacific Ocean are likely the result of man-made industrial pollution rather than pieces of an interstellar meteor, according to several new studies. Last summer, Harvard astrophysicist and extraterrestrial hunter Avi Loeb declared that several tiny mechanic metallic balls—several, I think it was a lot more than several. It was a lot more. It was like hundreds. I mean, I don't, I don't know where they're getting several from. But anyway, several tiny metallic metallic balls dredged up from the bottom of the ocean were likely remnants from an interstellar meteorite, uh, and could even be con- and could even contain signatures of alien technology. Now, independent analysis suggests the spheres have a much less distant origin. They are more likely a byproduct from burning coal on Earth. Loeb and his colleagues found the micrometer-sized spherules during an expedition off the coast of Papua New Guinea in search of fragments of a meteor that streaked through the atmosphere in 2014. Based on the meteor's recorded speed, Loeb and his team said that it was likely interstellar in origin and that it must have left debris in its wake. The dredged-up spears, they suggested, are that debris, as their composition is different to that of most meteorites. In several blog posts and a non-peer-reviewed paper posted to the preprint database ARXIV, Loeb described the various anomalous properties of the metallic pellets. He zeroed in on five spherules in particular that contained a high percentage of beryllium, lanthanum, and uranium. Loeb dubbed these five Belu spherules. He and others have since speculated that the weird spheres might be evidence of alien technology. 
But many scientists unrelated to the research took issue with these claims at the time, and now several newly published studies poke additional holes in the supposed extraterrestrial origins origins of the spherules. Now, here's the problem, before I get move on with this article, is the fact that these scientists didn't even look at this stuff themselves yet. They didn't study this stuff at all, but yet they're, they're making proclamations from their dens. Uh, continuing here. First, there is some debate as to whether or not the meteor in question was actually interstellar. It was only recorded by U.S. military equipment, and some researchers say that it's possible the sensors made a mistake when recording its speed, according to a new non-peer-reviewed paper on November that was posted on November 13th. However, even if the meteor speed was correctly recorded, odds are low that any significant pieces of it would survive the fall through the atmosphere. Uh, and here's... Uh, what two uh, professors, uh, a professor of Arizona State, Steve Desch, uh, and also uh, Alan Jackson of Towson University, recently wrote this. If interstellar, practically none of the 2014 bolide would have survived entry, These uh, th- those two guys said, Desch and Jackson. I've talked about Desch before. This guy's as lazy as they come. If I were traveling at the speeds that were reported and necessary to be interstellar, then at least 99.8% and probably 99.999% of it would have evaporized in the atmosphere, leaving insignificant quantities to be deposited on the seafloor. Then there's the issue of proving the spheres came from, this is, uh, not, that's the end of that quote. Uh, but moving on with the article, it says here, then there's the issue of proving the spheres came from that particular meteor. Scientists don't know where or even whether the 2014 meteor landed. It would be extremely difficult to find tiny pieces of that extract specimen by searching the ocean within a 30 mile or 48 kilometers radius nearly 10 years after it appeared. On the other hand, little metal balls are ubiquitous on the sea floor. Some are micrometeorites shed by passing space rocks, but others are spewed out by volcanoes or produced by industrial activity. These naturally collect at the bottom of the ocean over time. And then finally, there is a question of the sphere's makeup. If you start from the assumption that these particular pellets originated from space, then their composition does indeed seem unusual. However, as a recent paper published on October 13th in the journal Research Notes of the AAS points out, they match the profile of coal ash contaminants. Study author Patricio Gallardo, an astronomer at the University of Chicago, wrote that because of this, the meteorotic origin is disfavored. Uh, so yeah, they're saying this Gallardo is saying that this is most likely something else. It's not what uh, Loeb says it might be. Is it still possible that that the spherules came from somewhere outside of our solar system? Yes, but based on the available evidence, it appears far more likely they originated much closer to home. The new paper suggests. As NASA astrobiologist Caleb Scharf wrote on X, formerly known as Twitter, well, they did indeed discover evidence of a technological civilization right here on Earth. Now, again, so basically what they're saying is it could be from uh, you know, pollution, from coal ash. That's what it's, these scientists who haven't looked at the spherules themselves are saying and writing, putting out papers and uh, basically trying to uh, make Loeb look like a fool. Now, Loeb has... Uh, clapped back at them uh, in an article from November 15th on medium.com he wrote uh, article the headline reads new knowledge must be learned not preached now at this point people uh, Loeb is not stating what it is exactly he's he's still studying this yet he has the spherules himself uh, 
But you have these other scientists, right, who are just making proclamations from their den while they're sitting there with their uh, smoking jackets on with pipes, you know, for, sitting in front of a fireplace. That's what they're doing. Not not really doing any science, not like Loeb uh, is doing here. But anyway, uh, I want to read some of this uh, article from Loeb. He says, We live in an unfortunate time when the social media megaphone is in the hands of unreliable people with agendas. Doing the hard work of science is ridiculed by lazy critics who have an opinion. I love it. I got you got to say right now, I'm going to stop here for a second. You got to love it when he just calls them right out. Lazy critics who have an opinion. You got to love it. Anyway, continuing. Lately, some of these commentators promoted the claim that the spherules we collected in an expedition to the Pacific Ocean and analyzed carefully with the best instruments in the world over the past five months are coal ash. This claim is based on unrefereed comments that superficially examined a few elements out of the dozen we analyzed. To be scientifically credible, any such claim must reproduce the measured abundances of all elements and, in particular, demonstrate the loss of volatile elements as derived in our paper. And he says, uh, our team member, Dr. Jim Lem, head of the Department of Mining Engineering at the University of Tech in Papua New Guinea, noted, the region where the expedition was carried should have no coal mineralization. In addition, coal is non-magnetic and cannot be picked up by the magnetic sled that was used. Indeed, our Bellalu-type spherules have a much higher iron abundance than coal ash. Case closed. Let me just stop there for a second. So that's another thing these other uh, sci- these rival scientists who don't like the idea that Avi Loeb is stealing all their thunder these days and who don't really go out and investigate those, uh, these things themselves and just sit back and issue proclamations. Uh, it's interesting. They didn't even think about the idea that these that coal is non-magnetic and cannot couldn't have been picked up by the magnetic sled that was used to get these to obtain these spherules. Uh, anyway, continuing here, it says, Our research teams at the Bruker Corporation in Germany and at Harvard University in the U.S. are currently analyzing the remaining 93% of our full sample of nearly 800 spherules. We'll, we will report the complete results once available in the coming months. The fact that vocal critics reach definitive conclusions about the nature of these spherules without having access to them demonstrates how unprofessional their conduct is. Here, here, yes. Good, good way to put it. It is totally unprofessional. What kind of scientist makes proclamations like this without doing any kind of research or study? Well, I, it doesn't make any sense. They're just sitting back and 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 and, and throwing uh, uh, lemons at the guy from a distance. It's ridiculous. Why don't they get off their butts and do some actual research rather than just sit back and and uh, make statements without any uh, justification behind them? It's ridiculous. Uh, anyway, continuing here. It says the critics include bloggers and science popularizers who pretend to defend science but are not engaged in the work of science. Let me just stop here again. He's, you know, he actually slapped back recently also at Neil deGrasse Tyson for pretty much the same kind of uh, comments. Uh, continuing, he says, some commentators label themselves astrophysicists even though they dropped out of academia long ago and did not publish a single scientific paper over the last decade. When I pointed out that such people resemble spectators who tell soccer players how to pass the ball, one of them chose to describe himself as some blogger who doesn't even write a single paper in a decade on his Twitter handle, demonstrating how proud he is of his incompetence. It's amazing, isn't it? That's amazing. They are proud of their incompetence. They're just out there uh, throwing dung at them from a distance. They don't care. And they'll, they'll pretend they pretend they're scientists, but they don't do any kind of research. It's unknown, right? I just want to stop. Continue here for a second. It's unknown, right? What Loeb and his 
uh, team is going to learn here from these spherules. It could turn out to be nothing, but you got to give the guy credit. He's out there actually in the field doing science and trying to come up with answers on this, right? These other people, before he's even done his research, before he's completed his studies, are, are, are saying it's, oh, it's coal ash. And they don't even, they don't even look at it. Anyway, continuing here. Uh, he also says this, let me make one thing clear. Those who view incompetence as a feather in their cap will not succeed in terrorizing real scientists. Yes, that's a great statement. He brings up George or Orwell, who uh, forecasted this unfortunate reality 40 years too early. In his book, 1984, he mentioned the party slogan, ignorance is strength, similar to the Orwellian dystopia. The words of the above, above commentators who pretend to protect science violate the very principles they claim to represent. Yeah, what a bunch of, what a clown show. What a clown show that uh, Loeb is dealing with here. It's incredible. The tedious work of collecting materials and analyzing them requires a considerable effort. For our research team, it required months of preparation for the Pacific Ocean Expedition, weeks of collecting materials from the mild deep ocean floor across a seven-mile region plus control regions, and months of detailed analysis of these materials, all in partnership with the best professionals in the world. In contrast, critics have the easy option of throwing dust in the air and claiming that they do not see anything. Of course, critics suppressed progress throughout history. In fact, circumstances were even more unsettling in ancient times before modern science emerged. However, the present-day situation is frustrating in a different way. Loud voices on social media and blog posts claim to represent science without following the practice of science. What makes this experience surrealistic is that virtual realities like extra dimensions, the multiverse, or the, or the notion that we live in a simulation are not scrutinized at all, even though these ideas in the words of Wolfgang Pauli, not even are not even wrong because they have no evidence whatsoever to support or contra to contradict them. So that's, that's another great point. He's making tons of great points here. Loeb makes tons of great points. I don't agree with everything that Loeb is doing or, or does. Uh, I mean, I, I, I was a critic too the, when he was planning on doing this expedition. I thought, well, why don't we study what's the UFOs themselves? Why don't we? He is do, doing that with his Galileo project, but why not keep the focus on that? I mean, but I, I just thought spending money and time and effort to, to look at these spherules on the bottom of the ocean floor was going to turn up nothing. But at the same time, it's, you know, he's a scientist. He knows better than I do in the end. Or, you know, or even these other scientists who are pretend scientists that, who don't do any research themselves and just, uh, you know, just throw garbage from, from a distance. And they, they don't really care about actual science. They just care about uh, criticizing scientists who are actually doing the, the, the hard work. Anyway, uh, uh, Loeb also says this, he says, humanity is unlikely to find new knowledge about the cosmic neighborhood beyond the solar system without open-minded empirical exploration. The proper perspective on whether we have cosmic neighbors will be learned through experimental work of the type that the Galileo project team is pursuing. Commentators are often forgotten. Who remembers the name of the individuals who convicted Socrates for corrupting the youth of Athens? Who remembers the names of the antagonists of Galileo Galilei? Yeah, that's, these are great points that he's making here. I talk about this all the time. I just talk, I did a, I did a podcast just recently uh, on somebody who uh, in the year 1600 was put to death by the Roman Catholic Church because he believed that there was other worlds out there uh, that harbored life. Uh, so... Yeah, there's been philosophers over decades have been persecuted, and now we're in a different. This is the, it's the same thing now, except we're not they're not burning them at the stake, at least not yet. Uh, but we we've seen this kind of stuff 
throughout the decades. Uh, it's it's the, it, throughout the centuries, actually. Anyway, he, he says here, whether our civilization survives in the long run will depend on its willingness to learn from evidence rather than from preconceived opinions. Nature is more imaginative than we are. Our horizons will expand only by studying nature in the real world rather than insisting on the way we imagine nature in our minds. Yeah, that was that was a great uh, a great piece there, I must say. Uh, yeah, but this is something that we've been dealing with uh, for centuries. It's no it's no different today as it was in the in, in days of old. Uh, it's just how it is. Um, I mean, uh, Giordano Bruno. That's who I was talking about. He was a Renaissance era uh, philosopher, poet, and cosmological theorist uh, who basically spent like the last seven years of his life in a, in a dungeon. And then they finally uh, uh, dragged him out on the public square and burned him alive because he wouldn't give up his views on on what he thought was going on out there in the stars. And you see pretty much the same thing today. There's there's some people who call themselves scientists, right, who don't want to expand in science, who really don't want to do... They want to just keep everything the way it is. They think we already know everything we need to know, and they don't don't want to expand. But yet somehow they they fancy themselves as scientists. It's really great to see someone like Abby Loeb calling these jerks out and putting them in their place. I mean, anybody with a brain and looking at this, there's no way anybody... Unless you're really stupid and ignorant and dumb would take the side of these morons who are uh, against his research. Anyway, uh, I want to say thank you all for joining me. Until next time.